Good evening. Gunfire in Beirut, many are, um, may, pardon me, gunfire in Beirut, many are killed. Taiwan and China, what that means for the United States. And Captain Kirk makes it into space. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, October 14th, 2021. Heavy gunfire broke out today in Beirut during a protest organized by Hezbollah against the judge leading the probe into last year's blast in the city's port. At least six people were killed as gunfire echoed for hours and ambulances rushed to pick up casualties. Snipers shot from buildings, bullets penetrated apartment windows in the area. Schools were evacuated and residents hid in shelters. Tensions over the port blast have contributed to Lebanon's many troubles, including a currency collapse, hyperinflation, soaring poverty and extended electricity blackouts. In a statement, Prime Minister Najib Migati appealed for calm and urged people not to be dragged into civil strife. Meanwhile, the United States and Israel said yesterday they're exploring a plan B for dealing with Iran if the Islamic Republic doesn't return to the nuclear deal scuttled by former President Donald Trump. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid say discussions have begun on other options should Iran reject an offer to come back into compliance with the agreement if the United States rejoins it. Iran is becoming a nuclear threshold country. Every day that passes, every delay in the negotiations brings Iran closer to a nuclear bomb. Israel reserves the right to act at any given moment in any way that is not only our right, it is also our responsibility. We're united in the proposition uh, that Iran cannot be allowed to acquire a nuclear weapon. Uh, and President Biden is committed to that proposition. We continue to believe that diplomacy is the most effective way to do that, but it takes two to engage in diplomacy, and we have not, uh, we have not seen uh, from Iran a, uh, a willingness to do that. The remarks came at a joint news conference with the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates. All three agreed to try and expand on the Abraham Accords, the Trump-era agreements that normalize relations between Israel and the UAE and other Arab states. And at least 46 people were killed and another 41 injured after a fire broke out early today in a rundown mixed commercial and residential building in the Taiwanese port city of Kaohsiung. The 13-story building was home to many poor, elderly, and disabled people, and it wasn't clear how many of the 120 units were occupied. The decades-old apartment building is one of many in the Yancheng district, an older part of Kaohsiung, a city of some 2.8 million people in southwestern Taiwan. Meanwhile, China and Russia are holding joint naval drills off the Russian Far East in the latest sign of their growing political and military alignment. The exercises, Joint Sea 2021, kicked off with a ceremony today in Russia's Peter the Great Gulf and will run through Sunday. Chinese state media say the drills would encompass communications, anti-mine, anti-air and anti-submarine operations, joint maneuvering and firing on seaborne targets. In related news... 
Beijing has strongly criticized an agreement for Australia to obtain a fleet of eight nuclear-powered submarines built with United States technology announced last month that is largely seen as a response to China's vastly upgraded naval capabilities. The rivalry between the United States and its biggest trading partner has grown into a duel of military capabilities as China has flown aircraft to near the shores of the island of Taiwan and considers a breakaway pro- a island it considers a breakaway province. The recently signed agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States is named AUKUS. James Bradley is author of The China Mirage, The Hidden History of American Disaster in Asia. He says the U.S. has no hope of bullying modern China. Look, at I'm sorry, but the same general failures who train the uh, Afghani army train the Japanese army. You know, the same admirals can't, you know, the submarine collided, right? And if you search... Navy mishaps or Navy ships colliding, they're not able to, uh, you know, get ships into harbor uh, correctly lately. I think there's four or five mishaps. These mishaps, you have to make mistakes over like 20, 30 miles. Uh You know, it's just this is not this doesn't happen. And uh, so, you know, general failure and, and admiral can't sail straight. Got it, got to the upper uh, regions of the military, and we see what's happening in Afghanistan. And the same, you know, strategists who did that are out in the South China Sea. So these aren't the same guys who like rose with your dad rose that flag on uh, Mount Suribachi. So you saw Fat Leonard is speaking. Fat Leonard is the Malaysian who was bribing the U.S. Navy admirals who had to be fired and uh, because of the huge uh, scandal that the U.S. Navy uh, upper, upper echelons was on the take. I'm not making it up. I love the Navy. My dad served in the Navy. But come on, Afghanistan, South China Sea, subs, you know, ships not working. What's going on? Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he took over, when he had a problem in the Pacific, it was called World War II. Pearl Harbor, some people might remember this. What did Franklin Roosevelt do? He just took the cream of the Navy and he retired them. He got rid of them and he reached seven layers down for Admiral Nimitz. And he got a guy who, if you had a meeting with Nimitz, you had to stand straight at his desk and there were no chairs in the room. And you had to be able to say a sentence you know, that meant something unlike the Secretary of Defense and all of our military establishment today. They talked a different language. They said, we're going to win, and then they won. Is the U.S. response realistic to the threat that they think they're facing? My oldest daughter, Michelle, was born in New York Hospital. She lives in Taipei. And if someone could tell me what is the danger to her, I'm talking to her and her friends. They can't understand the danger that's being promoted in America. I have friends in Hong Kong, Stanford University graduates, Australians, Norwegians, Americans. General Keene on Fox News said that uh, China ate you up and spit you into Hong Kong Bay. They're saying, well, we're eating noodles and dumplings and business is great. It's a different picture out here in Asia from what is being presented. Let's talk about the Chinese airplanes over Taiwan. How come the United States Marines were active in Taiwan doing maneuvers that you could see? You and I, Paul, could have gone up in an airplane, a little baby airplane, and seen Marines all over the place. But back in America, you couldn't see that. 
So when the Chinese planes were flying over, they were flying over U.S. Marines who were aggressively already in Taiwan. But we Americans weren't allowed to know that. We didn't see what was on the ground. We didn't see what was maybe provoking airplanes. So the Chinese see Taiwan as part of China. China says this is not an invasion. This is our province. That's their attitude. And that is James Bradley, as uh, he's the author of The China Mirage. And that is a book uh, uh, that talks about America's failure in China. His father uh, was the subject of an earlier book he wrote uh, that was made into a movie. He was one of the Marines who rose the flag over Mount Suribachi uh, during the end of World War II. He... Um, spoke with WBAI earlier today. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The government's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says families can feel safe trick-or-treating outdoors this year for Halloween as COVID-19 cases in the United States decline, especially for those who are vaccinated. Nationwide, there are about 95,000 new COVID-19 cases a day. Fauci called the downward trend good news, but cautioned against declaring a premature victory since cases have bounced back in the past. We now a decline in acceleration and a turnaround of cases. Where do we ultimately want to be? It is going to be very difficult, at least in the foreseeable future and maybe ever, to truly eliminate this highly transmissible virus. We've only eradicated one. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a level of control of the virus that would allow us to be able to essentially approach the kind of normal that we are all craving for and that we all talk about. So how can we get to that level of control? Obviously, you know what the answer is. It's vaccination. But as shown here, we still have, as we emphasize over and over again, about 66 million people who are eligible to be vaccinated who remain unvaccinated. And the age groups, particularly among the younger groups, we have a long way to go. If you compare fully vaccinated people with unvaccinated, they have a five times lesser uh, like, uh, likelihood of getting infected, a 10 to 11 to 12 times less likelihood of being hospitalized, and a more than 10 times less likelihood of dying. And the final message of all of us is always the same on the last slide. Protect yourself and those around you. Vaccination is the answer. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is the government's top infectious disease expert. But Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt and his Attorney General John O'Connor today blasted President Joe Biden's pending vaccine mandate. That's for businesses with more than 100 employees calling the action overreach. O'Connor urged state employers to disregard the Biden administration's efforts to implement a mandate. Biden has issued a federal vaccine mandate on businesses with 100 or more employees to be implemented in the coming weeks. And the university, meanwhile, though, the University of Oklahoma COVID response chief says the state has about 31 new cases daily per 100,000 population. That's 10 times more than in early June when new daily cases fell to three per capita. And President Biden announced yesterday the Port of Los Angeles will operate around the clock and major companies, including Walmart, UPS and FedEx, would expand their working hours. His administration has been struggling to relieve growing backlogs in the global supply chains that deliver critical goods to the United States, frustrating American consumers and businesses and contributing to inflation. Biden says the moves would almost double the number of hours that the Port of Los Angeles is open for business. 
Los Angeles announced today that it's going to begin operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This follows the Port of Long Beach's commitment to 24-7 that it announced just weeks ago. This is the first key step toward moving our entire freight, transportation, and logistical supply chain nationwide to a 24-7 system. That means an increase in the hours for workers to be moving cargo off ships onto trucks and rail cars to get to their destination. And that's President Biden speaking earlier today about his plans uh, consumer demand for exercise bikes, laptops, toys, patio furniture, and other goods is booming, fueled by big savings amassed over the course of the pandemic. Imports for the fourth, fourth quarter are on pace to be almost 5% higher than in the same period last year, which was also a record-breaking holiday season. And in more national news, former Scana Corp, or Corporation CEO Kevin Marsh, he's a utility executive, for a company that does a lot of work providing electricity to South Carolina, repeatedly lied to keep investors pumping money into South Carolina's $9 billion nuclear reactor debacle, up to $11 billion, I'm told. We'll spend two years in prison for fraud. That's according to a federal judge today. Scana is the energy utility for Atlanta and other areas in Georgia. It was part of a plea deal that will cost the former CEO a $5 million fine as well. The court says the company spent billions of dollars on two South Carolina nuclear plants that have never generated a single watt of power. There's also two plants being built in Georgia, though still under construction, are facing similar problems. Tom Clements is the director of Savannah River Site Watch, an organization concerned with nuclear weapons plant in South Carolina called Savannah River Site. He was also an intervener in the case before the South Carolina Public Service Commission on behalf of Friends of the Earth, looking into the increase in rates that occurred after the power plant deal was signed. He says the project to build these four nuclear power reactors in Georgia and South Carolina was a scam to fleet ratepayers and eventually stack uh, taxpayers from the start. The utilities got their way to get these so-called construction work in progress laws passed. Now, it wasn't to put the taxpayer necessarily on the hook. It was more aimed at the ratepayer. But both projects in Georgia and South Carolina uh, the Georgia project is continuing now, did have provisions where there would be incentives if the projects went online by a certain date. So there would be a rebate, basically, or a subsidy per kilowatt hour from the federal government. The utilities were dipping not only into the pocket of the ratepayers, but also into the pocket of the federal taxpayer. It just In South Carolina, it was simply not sustainable by a small utility and its partner. And after wasting about $11 billion in 2017, the project collapsed and South Carolina Electric and Gas and its parent company, Scana, went bankrupt. And it turned out there was fraud and misrepresentation to the Public Service Commission. There's been quite a number of people charged in federal court and now one has been sentenced. The CEO, it's rare you hear that. It's quite rare that uh, there's such accountability for the corporate bosses. And in this case, it was the former CEO, Scana, which was the parent company of the electric utility. He was guilty of fraud, and he admitted it, of lying to regulators, particularly the South Carolina Public Service Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission, about the project that they knew they could not sustain and they knew they could not meet the deadline to get federal tax credits by January 2020. 
so they strung the project out for several years knowing that it would not meet any schedules and also knowing that they couldn't pull it off because they just couldn't borrow enough money. He's gotten 24 months that he's going to have to serve in federal prison. He agreed to pay $5 million fine. In my opinion, this guy got rich, Kevin Marsh, from 2008 until when the project collapsed. So $5 million is really a slap on the wrist. He could have faced 20 years in prison, but the federal attorney and the lawyers for Mr. Marsh agreed to 24 months. And I'll tell you, it was interesting to hear the federal judge express great reluctance about that deal for 24 months, but she reluctantly accepted it. So he's off to prison in early December. You said there's another project like this still going on in Georgia? Let me add, there are three other people that are now going to face some kind of punishment. One is a former SCANA chief operating officer, and two officials from Westinghouse who designed the reactor. One of the Westinghouse people and the SCANA person have admitted guilt, but the other Westinghouse person is going to stand trial. That's going to be risky for him because the jury pool is going to be from ratepayers they're continuing to rip off. The project in Georgia, it's it's a mirror image, two nuclear reactors called Westinghouse AP-1000. Construction is continuing. The word is those two reactors are going to cost $35 billion or more, and it's yet to be seen if they're going to be completed. There's like 5,000 workers at the site, and it's just a massive failure, as was the project in South Carolina. Basically killed the so-called nuclear renaissance, What could have been done with $11 billion in South Carolina to fighting climate change and for clean energy? There was no consideration given to alternatives or any uh, clean energy generation. It's a testament to large centralized power plants that we need to move away from. It's a testament to operatives who want to make a profit off these large projects, whether they fail or whether they succeed. That's what we're seeing with so-called small modular reactors and so-called advanced reactors, they all want money from the government. And there's no demonstrated ability that they have the the technical know-how to pull the projects off. And that is Tom Clements from Savannah River Watch discussing the – he's an organization concerned with nuclear weapons plant in South Carolina. He was intervener in the case before the South Carolina Public Service Commission on behalf of Friends of the Earth – Closer to home, roughly 60 protesters gathered in front of Department of Education headquarters in Manhattan Tuesday to lobby for the preservation of the city's gifted and talented program. Mayor de Blasio announced the dissolution of the city's current accelerated learning model on Friday and unveiled a new structure that would nix separate classrooms for advanced kids. Program backers gathered Tuesday to decry the decision, arguing that the current model should be reformed and expanded rather than eliminated. The mayor wants to get rid of the gifted and talented classes throughout the city, and we're here to tell him no. They're using schools to achieve their version of equity, which involves closing the achievement gap by slowing down education, by taking away opportunities for all kids. Do we look like domestic terrorists? This is what parent advocacy looks like. What our country is focusing on, what we are trying to turn our schools into, is not working. 
Our schools need to be places of academic excellence, not indoctrination, not giant group therapy sessions. Our schools need to be places where children are learning. Critics have decried the current admission system, which hinges on a single test score on a standardized exam administered to kids as young as four years old. And hundreds of women and transgender detainees will be moved out of Rikers Island and into state prisons. It's the latest attempt to ease conditions at the city jail complex that have devolved into crises. Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Bill de Blasio struck the deal, agreeing to move 230 detainees, almost all of the women and transgender people locked up at Rikers, to two state facilities in Westchester. The move comes after Hochul also signed legislation and ordered the release of people in jail for minor parole violations. And in City Hall, an 1833 statue of Thomas Jefferson will be taken out of New York City Hall in the coming days and sent to a museum, capping longstanding efforts to remove the founding father's likeness because he owns slaves. Asked about the statue uh, today, Mayor Bill de Blasio says he understood why Jefferson's history as a slave owner profoundly bothers people and why they find it's something that can't be ignored. The Black Latino Asian Caucus requested last year that that be reviewed by the Public Design Commission, and they are asking that it be moved to the New York Historical Society for a period of time. I respect they're a legislative body. It's a democracy. I respect their right to make that request. The Public Design Commission will make its decision and we'll move forward. To the bigger topic, and this is something, again, came from the council, not from uh, me or the First Lady, but I'll speak to my own views on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he's very complex, to say the least. Um, the, the thing that is so troubling to people is that even someone who understood so deeply uh, values of freedom and human dignity and the value of each life was still a slave owner. And I understand why that profoundly bothers people and why they find it something that can't be ignored. At the same time, stating the obvious, one of the most profoundly important figures in American history and one of the people who created this nation and created the, the good and strong and vibrant values of this nation. So he's a very complex figure. That's Mayor de Blasio earlier today, a little known City board called the Public Design Commission is expected to approve the statue's move on Monday from the city council chamber to the New York Historical Society as a long-term loan. One of my heroes, Bill Shatner, William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on the long-running TV show, actually short-running, but long-running in the sense of the influence it had on television and on uh, media in the years following Star Trek, had his opportunity to go into space on Jeff Bezos's, uh, the header and owner of Amazon, his rocket, Blue Origin, and to uh, actually reach the edges of space by rocket. It was uh, fascinating. I love the uh, comments that the 90-year-old Shatner had for the media when he returned from his uh, space travel. Wow, there's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin. And you're through it in an instant. You're going 2,000 miles an hour. So you're through 50 miles uh, whatever the mathematics Fast. was, it's, uh, it's mysterious and galaxies and things, but what you see is black. And what you see down there is light, and that's the difference. And not to have this, what you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. Uh, I'm so 
filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. That was the 90-year-old Bill Shatner who played Captain Kirk, brought to tears by his experience. 11 minutes, of which four minutes were in space weightlessness, where he got to see where Earth and space meet, and to think very much and deeply about the meaning of life and our place on this small blue marble. And that's some of the news for Thursday, October 14, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>